My name's James Taylor, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm especially delighted to see such a large crowd for what's going to be a highly invigorating debate. My role as a moderator is simple. It's to make sure that the debate runs smoothly and keeps to time, and also to break up any fights that might occur either between the speakers or within the audience, <laughs> or possibly to instigate them. The debate is going to proceed as follows. Both speakers will have an opening statement of 20 minutes each, beginning with Dr. Tourette. Each speaker will then have 10 minutes to rebut their opponent. The speakers will then have within themselves a question and answer session which will last for 10 minutes. Each speaker will give the other two questions and they will answer directly and without deviating from the questions. The floor will then be open to the audience for 40 minutes and the closing will be occur when the speakers give closing statements of five minutes each, addressed to the audience. And I would like to introduce our first speaker tonight, Dr. Tarek. Thank you. Thank you. Christopher and I debated uh, a number of months ago at Virginia Commonwealth University. How many attended that debate or were somewhere else at the time? Just wanted to see if you're all listening. You're going to have to listen a lot uh, over the next couple hours because I am going to try and summarize the first 200 pages of this book in the next 20 minutes. And that will require me to speak at about 20 pages a minute. But I can probably do it because I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up in Neptune. Anyone here from the shore? Hey, forget about it. Unbelievable. Anyway. It's, I'm going to go as fast as I possibly can. I speak at 150 words a minute with gusts to 350. So I'm going to move really quickly. If you can't keep up, no problem. The book is available. And I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the book will go to feed needy children. Mine. All right? <laughs> Just so you know, I got three kids. Two of them are in college, so I need some help. Now, I'd like to thank, of course, uh, Kendall Ackerman of the Protestant Bible Fellowship. And... Uh, Kendall's around here. He is right down here. I'd also like to thank Michael Tracy of the Secular Student Association. Where are you, Michael? Right down here. And of course, the College of New Jersey, and especially Christopher. Christopher is on the road a lot, so I appreciate the opportunity to uh, get together again and discuss this, this incredibly important issue. Now, the, the, the debate tonight is, is this. What best explains reality, atheism or theism? Now, we're both trying to explain the world around us. So we both have the burden of proof to try and say why our worldview is the correct worldview. I have to show why reality is best explained by theism, and Christopher has to show why reality is best explained by atheism. Now, I, w I think we ought to follow the evidence where it leads, wherever that is, and I think the evidence leads us to a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator. But I want to give you some evidence for that. And in fact, I'm going to rely on the law of causality to do it. 
And the evidence I'm going to go through is basically six arguments, and I've come up with an acronym to help us uh, remember this evidence. I know it's kind of hokey, but it'll keep me on track and keep you on track. The acronym is COSMOS, COSMOS, C-O-S-M-O-S, the Greek word for world or universe. The C stands for the cosmos itself, sometimes known as the cosmological argument. That's the argument that the universe had a beginning, and therefore it needs a beginner. So we'll start there, and we'll start with Stephen Hawking, who's not a believer, but he said this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Alexander Valenkin, who is a Russian cosmologist who worked with Alan Guth at MIT on inflationary theory, put it this way. He called it proof. He said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, why would he say problem? Because some physicists don't like where the evidence is leading. Now, Christopher even admits that the Big Bang is the accepted theory of the origin of the universe. On his book, or in his book, page uh, 65, this is what he says. Now, what is this evidence that the universe had a beginning? Again, I'll give you one more acronym, and this is it. This is the acronym inside a C. It's SURGE, S-U-R-G-E. And this is all in chapter three of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I'm just going to go over it very quickly. And, and let me stop right here and say one thing. Uh, Christopher and I have debated before, and uh, I, I, I read some of the comments that people make about the debate, and people will say, well, Turek didn't answer this objection, or Hitchens didn't answer that objection. We only have 20 minutes. We can't cover the waterfront. So I'm not going to be able to get to everything, but let me just go through this acronym very quickly. SURGE, S stands for Second Law of Thermodynamics. The universe is running out of energy. If it was eternal, it would have run out of energy a long time ago. The U stands for the fact that the universe is expanding, discovered by Edwin Hubble in 1929, uh, working at the Mount Wilson Observatory out in California. The deduction of that is, is that the universe, if we could watch it in reverse, would collapse back to a point of nothing. The R in SURGE stands for the radiation afterglow, discovered just about 30 miles from here by two scientists by the name of Penzias and Wilson. In fact, uh, right over here in Homedale, New Jersey, where I used to run all my cross-country races, uh, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias in 1965 discovered the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion, as was predicted by Hubble and his contemporaries. They won a Nobel Prize for Physics in this in 1978. The G in SURGE stands for the great galaxy seeds discovered by the COBE space satellite in 1992. Those uh, great galaxy seeds are basically temperature variations in the radiation afterglow that are so precise, they're down to one part in 100,000. And the E in SURGE stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Einstein's theory of general relativity shows that space, matter, and time came into existence together. Once there was no space, once there was no matter, once there was no time and it all leapt into existence out of absolutely nothing. Now, Einstein's theory has been proven accurate to five decimal points. Now, what are the implications of this? First of all, what is nothing? I think we ought to define that. I think Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. Nothing is what rocks dream about. That's what he said. That's nothing. There was no space, no matter, no time. Nothing spatial, nothing temporal, nothing physical. What are the implications of this? Agnostic astronomer Robert Jastrow, who until February of last year sat in the same chair Edwin Hubble sat in, in 19, um, in, or that Hubble sat in back in the 20s, uh, until last year, that's where Jastrow was. He died, unfortunately, at the age of 82 last February, but he sat in that seat that Hubble did. Here's what Jastrow said in his book, God and the Astronomers. And remember, he's an agnostic. 
He said, the astronomical evidence leads us to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis is the same. Arno Penzias, the guy from Homedell, who discovered the radiation afterglow, co-discovered it, said this, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Robert Wilson, also working at home, Dell with Penzias and discovering the radiation afterglow said this, and he was a believer in the steady state theory before this. In other words, that the universe was eternal. He had to give that up after his discovery. He said this, certainly there was something that set it off. I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match Genesis. George Smoot, the co-discoverer of the great galaxy seeds, said this, there is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. Now, we're left with a beginner, or a beginning anyway, and we've got two choices. Either no one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. Now, which view is more reasonable? No one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing? For me, I don't think nothing can come from nothing. I mean, even Julie Andrews knew that. She said, nothing comes from nothing, right? You've got to have a cause to get something. Now, you can ask who made the someone, and if you want to ask who made God, we can do that during the Q&A. But it seems like someone created something out of nothing. Now, by the way, this is not a God of the gaps argument. Why? Because natural law couldn't have created the universe because natural law was created at the Big Bang. There was no nature. There was no natural law. In effect, it must be a supernatural cause because all of the natural realm hadn't yet, hadn't yet been created. And supernatural simply means beyond the natural. This led Robert Jastrow, again, the agnostic astronomer, to say this, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Echoing something that Arthur Eddington said many years ago when he said, we run into insuperable difficulties unless, frankly, we look at the supernatural for the beginning of the universe. In fact, Jastrow ended his entire book this way. This is worth the price of the book. After going through much of the surge evidence I just mentioned, Jastrow said this, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. No doubt reading Genesis 1-1. The best explanation for the beginning of the universe is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the C. A lot more in the book on it. We've got to move on to the O. And the O in cosmos stands for order. This is sometimes called the teleological argument for design. Not only did the universe explode into being out of nothing, it did so with extreme precision. In other words, the Big Bang was not a chaotic explosion. How incredibly precise was it? Atheist Steven Weinberg put it this way. He said, life as we know it would be impossible if any one of several physical quantities had slightly different values. There are dozens of these quantities. One of them, as Stephen Hawking identified, was this. He said that if the universe or if the expansion rate of the universe changed by one part in a hundred thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, we wouldn't be here. The universe would not have expanded or it would have collapsed back on itself or it never would have created galaxies. That's how precisely designed the Big Bang event was. Not only was the Big Bang event precisely designed, so are many constants about our universe right now. If you change the gravitational force by one part in 10 to the 40, we wouldn't be here. 
What's one part in 10 to the 40? Illustration. Take a tape measure, stretch it from that back wall to the front wall in inches. If you set gravity at a particular inch mark on that tape measure and move the strength of gravity one inch in either direction, proportionally, we go out of existence. But the problem is, is the tape measure doesn't go from that wall to this front wall. It goes across the entire known universe. You change gravity that much in the entire known universe, we don't exist. For you Navy people out here, I, went to, I was in the Navy for many years. Think of an aircraft carrier. If you take an aircraft carrier, like uh, the John Stennis or the Ronald Reagan, which displaces 110,000 tons, has a runway on it that's about three lengths of a football field, has five to 6,000 people on it, several stories high. If you were to change the weight of that aircraft carrier, by less than a trillionth the weight of an electron, it would be uninhabitable if the aircraft carrier was the universe. That's how incredibly designed the universe is. Arno Penzias again said, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Frank Tipler in 1986 wrote a book called The Anthropic Cosmological Princ uh, Principle with John Barrow. It's the classic work on the fact that the universe is precisely tweaked to support life. Here's what Tipler has since said. When I began my career as a cosmologist some 20 years ago, I was a convinced atheist. I never in my wildest dreams imagined that one day I would be writing a book purporting to show that the central claims of the Judeo-Christian theology are in fact true, that these claims are straightforward deductions from the laws of physics as we now understand them. I have been forced into these conclusions by the inexorable logic of my own special branch of physics. Now some people, we may even get into Darwinism later. Like Darwinism saves atheism. Darwinism does not save atheism at all because you need a universe before you can ever get to life. And it shows here and then you need life. The universe needs a designer. The universe itself, not just life. So that's the O, let's move on to the S which is another branch of the cosmological, uh, I'm sorry, of the teleological argument. The S stands for specified complexity. In everyday English, specified complexity is information. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're walking along the beach Say down here in Belmar, where I was today, had a nice run on the beach today on a boardwalk in Belmar. Let's say you're walking along the beach in the summer and you look down as you're walking along the beach and you see in the beach someone has scrawled, Bennies, go home. <laughs> now some of you don't know what Bennies are, but Bennies are basically tourists. Are you gonna say that the waves came up and put that message in there? Or that the crabs came up and said, I'm tired of all these tourists stepping on me. I'm gonna put a message there for them to go home. No, you'd say, Somebody, some intelligent being put that in there. Or then you put your head back on the uh, pillow or back on your towel and you look up and you see in the clouds, drink Coke. What do you assume, unusual cloud formation? Do you go wind coming from the north today? Do you go, oh no, I got it, it's cloud evolution. No, you say there had to be a skywriter up there, why? Because messages only come from minds. We know of no natural law that can create a message. Messages only come from minds. Now, let's move into life. A simple, so-called simple, one-celled creature has a thousand complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica worth of information in it. A thousand, let's say a thousand volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica in it, in terms of its DNA. DNA. 
that much information in it. Now, to believe that that resulted by natural forces without intelligent intervention is like believing that the Library of Congress resulted from an explosion in a printing shop. I don't have enough faith to believe that. You have to have more faith to believe that that happened that way than to say that somebody put intelligence into it. In fact, this is not an analogy, by the way. The analogy or the comparison of information to DNA in fact, it's a one-to-one -one correspondence. The only difference is DNA is a four-letter genetic alphabet. English is a 26-letter genetic alphabet, uh, alphabet. Bill Gates said DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. And in fact, the sequence of letters in DNA is not determined by chemistry. It's information. It has nothing to do with the four natural forces. In fact, just like the letters in this book were not put together by the laws of ink, ink and paper, the letters in DNA don't appear to be the result of anything other than intelligence. Intelligence put this together, not natural law. Anthony Flew, who was an atheist, one of the more famous atheists until he became a deist or a theist recently because of this evidence put, this, put it this way. It is impossible for evolution to account for the fact that one single cell can carry more data than all the volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided the materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. Sir Fred Hoyle, also an atheist, said this, the likelihood of the spontaneous formation of life from inanimate matter is one in a number that has 40,000 zeros following it. If the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. He went on to say this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Again, this is not a God of the gaps argument, why? It's not just that we lack a natural law for Benny's go home or we lack a natural law for a book like this, it's that a book like this is positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being. Because messages only come from minds. The M in cosmos stands for the moral argument. If just one thing is morally wrong out there, like for example it's wrong to kill Jews, or it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to participate in a religious crusade, then there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no God, it's just your opinion against, say, Hitler's opinion. It's just your opinion against bin Laden's opinion. We all intuitively understand that certain things are objectively right and objectively wrong. As Dostoevsky said, he said, if there is no God, everything is permitted in a novel he wrote. In fact, even Richard Dawkins admits on page 232 of his book, The God Delusion, he says, there are no objective morals without God. But we all intuitively know that certain things really are objectively wrong. It's not just my opinion that torturing babies for fun is wrong. It really is wrong. Now, I've got to be very careful here because Christopher may say that I'm saying he can't be moral. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying atheists can't be moral. I'm not saying atheists don't know morality. They know morality just like anybody else. I'm not saying anything about the behavior of atheists or religious people. I'm only saying that an atheist can't justify why a certain thing is objectively right or a certain thing is objectively wrong. Atheistic materialism can't provide a moral standard. Molecules have no authority to tell you what to do. They don't. I mean, if we're just overgrown germs with no ultimate purpose, why not kill or rape to get what you want? 
Why not? It seems to me that atheism has no way to deal with this objection. C.S. Lewis was an atheist at one point, and he thought evil disproved God until he realized that evil actually pointed to God because evil pointed to good, and you wouldn't know good unless you knew God. In fact, here's what Lewis said. As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Bottom line. Since objective moral values exist, God exists. The O in cosmos, how am I doing, Dr. Taylor? Five minutes. All right, I'm going up to 500 words a minute now. The O in cosmos, cosmos stands for objectivity. Objectivity, particularly in the laws of logic, mathematics, and even science. In fact, this debate and any debate presupposes that there is an objective standard of truth out there that our minds can access and understand. Christopher says he's closer to that objective standard, and I'm saying, no, I'm closer to that objective standard. If there's no objective standard out there, what are we doing up here but, but emoting? But it doesn't seem to me like there can be an objective standard of truth, an immaterial standard in an atheistic worldview, because we're just molecules in motion. In fact, how do the laws of logic and reason itself exist if we are just molecules in motion? There are immaterial realities out there that we all know and we all understand. Christopher tries to make an argument, a logical argument against God. Well, where does he get logic from if we're just molecules in motion? If atheism is true, you have no grounds to believe it or anything else. Our thoughts are just chemical reactions in the brain. In fact, macroevolution doesn't help either because macroevolution does not yield truth, it yields survivability. In fact, Dawkins points this out. He says, basically, that there's a gene or there's something going on chemically in us that makes more people believe in God. And you know what? When more people believe in God, they tend to survive better. Of course, Dawkins thinks that believing in God is false. So here's evolution trying to show people that they ought to believe in God or that somehow gets them to believe in God, but the belief in God, according to him, is false. Evolution yields survivability, not truth. So if evolution is true, you ought not believe it. Even Darwin recognized this. It's called Darwin's doubt. He said, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Why should you believe in Darwinism if Darwinism is true? Your mind is just the result of lower animals. Also, the laws of mathematics. Science depends on the notion that the universe is rational and mathematical at all levels, that every effect has a cause. But how does rationality and mathematics arise from randomness? How do they come from matter? Doesn't seem to me there's an atheistic answer to this. Rationality, mathematics, and science itself are better explained by theism than atheism. The only reason we can do science is because there's an orderly world out there. Well, who ordered the world? Finally, the S in cosmos stands for a solitary life. I don't have time to present the evidence for the historicity of the New Testament documents and the resurrection. Perhaps, perhaps we can get to that during the Q&A, or Christopher and I can debate that at a future point. Maybe uh, we can, as I say, hint at it during the Q&A or get to a little bit of it. But I want to leave you to consider something about Jesus called the solitary life. I'll just end on this. It was written about 90 years ago. He was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. 
He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He never led an army. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accomplish greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was uh, nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. And when he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected humanity on this earth as much as that one solitary life. I need one minute. Is that okay? 48 seconds. <laughs> If there was no rec resurrection, how could this life be the most influential life of all time? Was it just because a bunch of pious Jews in Jerusalem inexplicably decided to chuck Judaism and fabricate a resurrection story so they could fulfill their dream of getting beaten, tortured, and killed? I don't see why they would do that. I think it takes more faith to believe that than to believe he actually rose from the dead. Now, you see, anything is more plausible than a miracle. The greatest miracle in the Bible is not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least believable. I'm sorry I'm out of time, but I did the best I could. Cosmos, thank you very much. Thank you. Now our second speaker. Christopher Hitchens. I have no local boy roots. Um, <laughs> I am a Navy brat, however. Um, Commander Hitchens uh, of Portsmouth. Um, I, I'd like to assure you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, that, that isn't the best that Frank can do. He, uh, he ended with that pious hope. Um, he must indeed hope it isn't. I've seen him do better in his 20 minutes. He barely got his trousers off, as a matter of fact, before he had to sit down, because he didn't get beyond deism. I don't think he even intended much to get beyond deism. Um, if there was a word a-deist, it would describe me probably rather better than the, word, the vulgar word atheist uh, does. Um, I don't have a special word for saying why I don't believe in Santa Claus, for example, or why I don't believe in the Tooth Fairy, or why I don't believe in astrology. I don't need a special word for that. I assume, with, with me, you assume that these are fairy tales, man-made fables, either for the frightening or the amusement of, depending on need, children. Uh, I don't believe there is a supernatural dimension, um, and I don't believe there have ever been any miracles, so I don't believe that prayers are answered, I don't believe any of this. None of this comes up so far in this argument. I'm not arguing with a religious person yet at all. I'm arguing with someone who claims to know more than I do about physics and biology. It's possible that he does. Many, many people do. But bear in mind that we cannot say that we know that there was not a prime mover. It it, it's not within our compass. Pitifully ignorant as we are, only scrabbling on the lower slopes of the study of physics as all of us are, even the best, we may not say that we know there was no prime mover. We may not say that. Um, we can say that all the laws appear to operate 
without that assumption. Uh, it's very, very, very rare indeed to meet a physicist of any standing from Einstein onwards who is not at the most a Spinozist. In other words, someone who might say there could be a pantheism somewhere, there could be a force, uh, but there is no, no way you can take a step from the laws of physics, the observable creation of the cosmos, uh, that leads you to the belief that there is an intervening personal God who does answer prayers, who does watch over you, who does notice what you're up to, who does mind what you do, who you sleep with and in what position, uh, what you eat, what you eat and on what days of the week, uh, what propitiations and sacrifices you will make, what commandments you will observe. There is no possible way, no one's even tried it, of getting from the laws of physics or biology to any such idea. So from uh, the person who says, I'm a deist, I don't think all of this can be an accident, there must be some cosmic force, I say, I can't disprove it, though I think the cosmos functions without it, but you have all your work, sir or ma'am, still ahead of you before you can say that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, let alone that he was the son of God, let alone that his mother was a virgin, let alone that he was resurrected. None of these things, by the way, would prove he was the son of God if they did happen, nor would they prove that his doctrines were not erroneous. A resurrected person who was the son of a virgin could still be talking nonsense. There's no logic that says he must be right. If I'm having an argument with you, sir, and you say, you lose, boy chick, I say, how come? because my mother never went to bed with, a, uh, with another man. Your logic is faulty. I think my, uh, my case could remain just as strong as ever it was. Uh, in default of that, I must say rather bizarre uh, intervention. Now, why do we have religion in the first place? Why are we having this discussion? Why does Frank feel the need to talk in this way? Because we are pattern-seeking mammals. It's part of our evolution. We look for patterns. We're designed to look for them. And if we can't find a good explanation, we'll come up with a bad one, rather than none at all. Uh, most people would rather have a conspiracy theory than no theory. It's very observable, that. There's a lot of junk science around before good science arrives. Before we have astronomy, we have astrology. Before we have chemistry, we have alchemy. Um, all of these things are deriv derivatives of religion, because in a very sinister verse of the Bible that used to upset me when I was being forced to listen to it as a, as a little boy, it says, seek and ye shall find. Yes, that's exactly right. Seek and you will find. Seek for an explanation of volcanic eruptions when you're living in a primitive society and you will think they're probably a, vi a, a visitation from an angry deity. And if you're told you can postpone the next eruption by throwing a few live babies into the lava down the crater, that's what you'll do. Religion has just started. Religion has just begun. Uh, why do some people get the plague and others not? Because they're sinful. Why, where's the plague coming from in the first place? It's a punishment from God and or, in early Christian society, the Jews have poisoned the wells. So we'll go and get them, again, because we already hate them because they killed our Redeemer. Uh, they committed deicide, all of them did, all of them, no one's exempt. Indeed, if you, want to be, if you have to be a Christian, it's an article of their faith that we were all present at Calvary. We all drove in the nails, the Jews particularly so. And we all have to expiate this guilt for a crime that may or may not have been committed, but if it was, was committed before we were born. What is this? It's not physics. Okay? It's not biology. It's not science. It's faith. Why don't you fly under your true flag, sir? Why don't you say these things must be believed as articles of faith? Don't try and derive it from science. Now, I've, um, 
uh, I can't improve on um, the argument that David Hume comes up with, came up with, against the idea of the supernatural, against the idea that, that the laws of nature are occasionally suspended in order to make people's faith a little more secure. Um, Ambrose Bierce, in his Devil's Dictionary, you may remember, says, uh, under prayer, under P for prayer, uh, prayer, um, a request that the laws of nature be suspended in favor of the petitioner, himself admittedly unworthy. Uh, David Hume puts it a little more acidly than that. He says, if you see the laws of nature apparently suspended, perhaps a virgin's given birth, uh, perhaps a leper has suddenly stopped being a leper, who, who knows what it might be, you know the sort of thing, um, you have to ask yourself one of two things. Well, actually, you have to ask yourself both. Which is the more probable, that the laws of nature have just been suspended or that I am under a misapprehension? That's if you are an eyewitness yourself to the one. If you're hearing about it second, third, fourth, and fifth hand, you have to ask this question with redoubled and trebled and quadrupled force. And the likelihood is which? That the laws of nature were suspended or that somebody may be garbled, maybe a rumor got around. Um, if you make this assumption, then nothing, nothing is mysterious about reality. Nothing is mysterious at all. It, it would explain why everyone seems to die and no one comes back. No longer a mystery about that. It would explain why uh, some people are cured of leprosy and other even worse diseases if they go to the doctor and if that doctor has access to certain kinds of drugs, but not if they don't. Um, the great theologian Lancelot Andrews, the Bishop of, um, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, during the Black Death wondered. He said, it seems odd to me. Uh, there are people who go to church and pray and they give their tithes and they uh, do everything that they're supposed to do, and they lead godly lives, and yet they seem to die of the plague just as much as the sinners do. He went to his grave, the, the, uh, the archbishop, not realizing that he'd very nearly stumbled on a very good point. After all, the, the, the discussion before us this evening is what explains reality better? Well, I think my explanation is probably, so far, not the inferior one. I've actually watched, I've seen myself the fabrication of a religion or of a religious figure. I've seen it done before my very eyes in the case of the, the fraudulent woman calling herself Mother Teresa, though she certainly was a virgin and never had any, any children, uh, and actually named uh, Agnes Bojashu, um, an Albanian crook who worked in Calcutta, who was considered by those who read only the newspapers as a friend of the poor, but was in fact a friend of an advocate for poverty. She believed poverty was a gift from God, that suffering ennobled people. Uh, she didn't believe in this for herself, for poverty, because she took several million dollars from, among other people, the Duvalier family in Haiti, uh, probably the most uh, cruel deceivers and oppressors of the poor uh, in the late 20th century, from the Charles Keating savings and loan uh, racket in California, the so-called uh, savings and loan scandal, uh, from many, many other uh, depraved uh, rich persons and used the money to build um, not a teaching hospital in Calcutta or a clinic or for the relief of, of poverty or hunger or disease or anything of the sort, but to build over 150 convents in her own name to found an order that would glorify and magnify herself. Uh, and that's where the money went. Um, since then, we are asked to believe by His Holiness the Pope, uh, the, late, uh, the lately named uh, Cardinal, formerly named Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, that because of an intercession by her posthumously, that a woman in Bengal named Monica uh, was cured of a tumor uh, just by praying and putting a, a, a picture of Mother Teresa on the swelling in her stomach. I can assure you that's not how tumors 
uh, go away. Ladies and gentlemen, I can also assure you the last thing India needs is to be told that its people, when they're ill, should go to faith healers and shamans and the, the, the enormous number of witch doctors, crooks and charlatans who there are in the subcontinent. Many people will die if they follow this kind of advice. Uh, and the doctors in the case have already testified before uh, anyone else uh, uh, could be heard from that they understand perfectly what medicine they gave her, how she responded to treatment, how normal the, the disorder was, how predictable was the recovery. But you're going to be told quite soon from St. Peter's Square in Rome that this was a miracle and it fulfills the conditions for this terrible woman to be made into a saint. I watched every stage of this. I saw it happen. I went to Calcutta. I've talked talk to and interviewed people who uh, were concerned in the miracle case. I was asked myself by the Vatican to come and testify against the ridiculous canonization and beatification of this woman. I know how religion gets started. And it gets started because we like our illusions and because the world, the realm of illusion, is very, very precious to us. But again, the matter for this evening is, does deism, theism, or atheism best explain reality? And once again, I don't think my explanation fails. Uh, how am I doing for time? Eight minutes. Bloody good. Um, there's a, the, this question of the, the beginning of things um, is, of course, very important. Um, and if you think that it must have had a beginner as well as a beginning, uh, that it's not just a design or an apparent uh, design, but it must have had a designer, you are f only asking for another question to be asked, which is who created this creator? Who designed this designer? Who fixed up this prime mover? Who was the prime mover for that prime mover? The, the common word for this in logic and some philosophy uh, causes is uh, it's an infinite regression. It doesn't really get you uh, anywhere, but as I say, it wouldn't get you to religion, even if you could prove that there must have been a prime mover. It wouldn't get you to the worship of other human beings as if they were prophets or saviors or redeemers. It can't help you get there. You have to believe that as a matter of faith or not. You can't do it from, from physics. There's furthermore, I think, an, an, an almost um, insuperable ontological problem involved here. Suppose it to be true. Suppose that I concede it. Suppose there must be such a designer or an individual, an intelligence, a, a, something like a person that does this. How could I know it? Which person is smarter, su sufficiently smarter, perhaps I should say, smart enough, smarter than me, smarter than anyone here, smarter, I dare say, even than Frank, to know this person and what's in his mind? I submit that it's not possible for another human being to tell you he knows this to be true, any more than it's possible for me to tell you, which I don't try and do, because I'm not unreasonable in this way, that I know it isn't true. But don't you see that there's all the difference in the world between my saying I can't know it and Frank saying, well, I can't prove it, because he wants you to believe it's necessary so that you will then become Christian. And I say that that's a leap that you simply cannot make, and you certainly can't make on the basis of evidence. And I think the religious would be much better to leave evidence alone where they don't excel and to concentrate on faith, where at least they can claim some kind of monopoly. I'm not terribly impressed either by the argument that's advanced so often these days. Remember, all the Christian propositions were complete and absolutely in place. The, the resurrection, uh, the, the uh, healing of, um, excuse me, not the healing, the, the forgiveness of sin, uh, all of these, uh, the, the virgin birth, um, the fatherhood of God, the sonhood of Jesus, 
uh, the Adam and Eve story. All of these things were completely believed and promulgated by the Christian church long before there was any knowledge of the Big Bang or of evolution. So what they're doing is essentially a, a reverse engineering job. Okay, now we do know these things. Most of them established, discovered, published in the teeth of religious opposition. Now we know them, ah, that proves we were right all along. God was even cleverer than we thought. This is just plagiarism. It's just borrowing from other disciplines to, to make it all uh, come right. And if we're going to talk about beginnings, we'd better have a bit of a word about ends, had we not. About the end, we know a great deal. We know, as Edwin Hubble discovered some time ago, that the universe is expanding at a very, very rapid rate. Uh, this is known as the red light shift effect. Um, it, was thought of, it was thought by most physicists that that wouldn't go on at the same rate for very long, that the rate at which everything was racing away from itself uh, would diminish. It was sort of Newtonian logic would suggest that. In fact, it's been shown very recently by a brilliant physicist named Lawrence Krauss that the Hubble rate is actually increasing. Things are flying apart much, much faster than we thought. Very soon, in fact, it won't be possible probably to see the red light shift or the other traces of the, of the original Big Bang anymore. The end is really coming on us uh, at an increasing rate of speed. So out of our something, to reverse the question that keeps being asked with such, such a suggestiveness, out of our something, a great deal of nothing is coming. So who's the creator and designer of that, may I inquire? And meantime, as any astronomer can tell you, if you look in the sky at night, you can almost, with the, without a telescope, see the Andromeda galaxy heading towards us. Um, it's not very far off in uh, astronomical time. The, astronomy, the Andromeda galaxy is headed direct collision course with our own. Uh, we, can, we know that's going to happen. There's a lot of nothingness headed our way. Um, and that's if we have time. Uh, that's if our, if our sun does not uh, swell up, uh, burn out, our oceans boil, everything come to an end. Uh, in the meantime, which is a certainty, to happen at some point, whether the other things happen before or after or not. So whose design exactly is that? How does it come that just in the tiny suburb of our bit of the cosmos, the little solar system that we inhabit, all of the other planets are either much too hot or much too cold to support anything like a life, as is true of great parts of our own planet? How is that? Some design, some designer. How is it that 99.9% .9 of all the species that have ever been on Earth ever recorded have gone extinct, as we very nearly did ourselves as a species in the, in the very early dawning uh, years of our existence in Africa, which has now been mapped. Very nearly went out of business altogether. Who designed that contingency? Whose plan and caprice is this? In other words, if, the, if, you're, if you are to rephrase all these arguments of, of science and natural law and so forth, to assume that they work better with a god, you're just as badly off as you would be otherwise because the same laws and the same processes still apply. You just say, but they're set in motion by a designer. In that case, he's responsible for the extinctions. He's responsible for the diseases. He's responsible for the chaos, for the dead planets, for the swirling chaos of the, of the other galaxies, for the, for the expanding rate at which nothingness is headed towards us. So this God, if he exists, must be one or some or all of the following. Uh, tinkering and incompetent, very capricious, very wasteful, and very cruel. Now, that is what you get, sir, 
if you make some deity responsible for the natural order as we observe it, which was the topic we were asked to uh, address this evening. And I think I'd be trespassing on uh, Frank's time if I went any further. So I'll reserve my, my remaining uh, points uh, for rebuttal. And I'm very grateful for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dr. Turek has 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. I wish I had an English accent. <laughs> Let me try and go down many of the things Christopher said. He said, I just proved deism, not theism. Notice uh, the creation of life is not a deistic concept, neither is a resurrection of Christ a deistic concept. But I might ask Christopher later if he's a deist now. That would be good. Uh, he said he doesn't believe in miracles primarily because of David Hume. But I think Hume's argument is discredited. Hume said that the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare, so you ought to always believe in the regular. The problem with the argument is, with that premise of the argument, is that the evidence for the regular isn't always greater than that for the rare. In fact, if Hume were here today, he would believe in the Big Bang. And that's a singular event. It hasn't happened over and over and over again. It's not the Big Bang, 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 Bang theory. It happened only once. He would also believe in the spontaneous generation of life. If it happened at all, it happened only once. It's not happening over and over again. He would also believe in macroevolution. If that happened, it happened only once. In fact, the entire history of the Earth has only happened once. So to say that the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare is not so. In fact, if Hume were consistent, he wouldn't believe in his own birth because it only happened once physically. There's two realms of science. There's empirical science, where you can do something over and over again, and there's forensic science, where you've got evidence, and it's a situation where you can just look at the evidence and try and figure out what happened in the past based upon the resulting evidence. It's like a criminal investigation. Singularities happen all the time. And it's kind of odd for Hume to say that you ought not believe in a rare event if it really happened. Suppose it did happen, like the Big Bang. If it did happen, Hume says you ought not believe in it. There's some, there's some problem with that argument. Also, for miracles to get our attention, they by definition have to be rare. They can't be regular events. If they were regular events, we'd think they were part of the natural phenomenon. So they have to be rare to get our attention. So Hume's argument is about believability. It's not about actuality. Miracles can actually occur, and Hume is saying if they actually occur, you ought not believe in them. That's a bad argument. Also, he said, you can't say there was no prime, new, uh, prime mover. That's what Christopher said. And that's what I'm saying. You can't say there was no prime mover. In fact, I think there was a prime mover. In fact, later on, he said, who made God? That's the big problem for theists. It's not a problem at all. Why? Because since something exists, we obviously exist, we're here, then something must have always existed because you can't create yourself. There has to be an eternal, uncaused first cause. Now, we have two possibilities. Either the universe is eternal and doesn't need a cause, and atheists have believed that for many years. They believed in the steady state theory and thought the universe was eternal. They had no problem believing in an eternal universe. The second possibility is that there's something outside the universe that is eternal. Now, I've given evidence, I know very quickly, that the universe has not always been here. It's not eternal. The surge evidence, second law, universe expanding, radiation afterglow, great galaxy seeds, Einstein. The universe is not eternal, so it must be something outside the universe that is. And that cause, it seems to me, must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Why? Because you can't 
If all space, all matter, and all time were created, the cause must be outside of space, matter, and time. This cause must also be extremely intelligent. Why? Because he created with extreme precision. He must also be personal. How can he be personal? Because you can't go from a state of non-existence to a state of existence without making a choice. An impersonal force has no ability to make choices. There couldn't have been like the Star Wars, use the force, loop choice out there. The force has no ability to make choices. Only a person can make choices. And once there was nothing physical, spatial, or temporal, and then suddenly an entire space-time continuum was created out of what rocks dream about, out of nothing. So someone made a choice. Christopher also said, we look for patterns. Yes, we do look for patterns. And the pattern I'm looking for is specified complexity that was in the first life and is in all life since then. When you see Benny's go home on the beach, you don't assume the crabs did that. You don't assume it was made by natural law. You assume there was a mind behind it. He said religion uh, came from or started with baby sacrifice. I, I know what religion's like. Well, many religions are false. I don't disagree. But to conflate all religions and put them all together and say, therefore, all religious viewpoints are false is not so. Christopher and I agree on 99% on, on of religions out there that are false. I, I agree with them. I just think there's one that is true. I'm not saying that every religion, everything they teach is false. I'm saying there are certain things they teach that are false. So we don't disagree there. He said, I ought to stop giving evidence and just rely on faith. That would make a pretty stupid debate, wouldn't it? I just have faith it's true and I'd sit down. <laughs> Christianity does not say rely on faith. Christianity says always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Be ready to demolish arguments that are counter to God. It says test all things. Christianity, Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid, despite the fact that the church has not lived up to this. We're supposed to give evidence. Secondly, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief, I have to believe that the elevator has a floor in it before I get in it, before I put my trust in it to hold me up. That's belief in, that I trust it's going to hold me up, but I have to have evidence that there's a floor there before I'm going to put my foot in there. In the same way, I have to have evidence that God exists before I'm going to put my trust in him, and that's what I'm trying to do here. I don't know what the big spiel was about Mother Teresa. I don't know what that has to do with, Christ with Christopher's worldview or how he's given any arguments for atheism. He hasn't given any arguments for his worldview yet. He's just complaining about what some religious people have done. Complaints about what some religious people have done does not do anything to whether or not Christianity is true. In fact, Christianity predicts we'll be hypocrites. That's why we need a savior. I am a hypocrite. But that doesn't mean that Christianity's false. Christianity's based on a person, Jesus, who was perfect. I'm not. That's why he had to come. Uh, Christy, uh, or Christopher also said, how, much, how am I doing on time, sir? Four minutes. Four minutes, okay. I was going into a Jersey overspeed there. Christopher said, I know how religion starts. Maybe he does, but I think many times he confuses a personal anecdote with data. You don't just take a personal anecdote and say, this is how all religions start. How do you know that? Uh, he said, how could I know if God exists? It's called revelation, and everybody in here has revelation. There's two types of revelation. There's natural revelation and special re revelation. Everybody in here and everybody out there knows there's a creator God from creation, because we know God by his effects, and also from conscience. Those two things show that there is a creator and a moral creator. 
The third revelation is through Christ and the Bible, in my view. Now, as I said, I haven't had enough time to go through all the data. I've got several chapters, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, trying to show why I think the New Testament documents are true. But that would be revelation. I don't see why, if I write Christopher a letter and I say, Christopher, this is what I'm thinking, like we did email, trying to arrange this debate, he could, he could figure out what my thoughts were. I, I can't see why God couldn't do the same thing. If he wants to write a, a book or a, a, a book of letters or whatever to try and tell us what he's about, he can do that. Not a problem. He said uh, something about proof. Um, I'm dealing with a probability argument here. Am I absolutely sure Christianity is true? No. I'm not absolutely sure. There's very few things you can be absolutely sure about. I'm trying to give a probability argument based on the evidence that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who ultimately revealed himself in Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago. Now, could I be wrong about that? Yes, I could. And during the Q&A, throw some stuff at us. That's fine. But Christopher seems to say that uh, I just want you to convert to Christianity. Well, I'd love for you to do that, as if he's not trying to get you to convert to atheism. What do you think he's doing here at this debate? He wants to get you to agree with him. And for many good reasons in, in many cases. That maybe you ought to give up false religion, religious beliefs. You ought to. I agree with Christopher on that. If they're false, give them up. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of times there may be things that you think are false that really aren't. Christopher finally talked about uh, the issue of some design. This universe is heading toward oblivion. Look, the very fact that something may be degrading doesn't mean it wasn't designed in the first place. Your car is currently degrading right now, but that doesn't mean it wasn't designed. There's something in the universe known as the second law of thermodynamics, and it basically means we're all going to go to heat death. That's true. Now, you can't say that the designer was capricious because you don't know the intentions of the designer. The only way you can say that something wasn't designed optimally is if you know what the intentions of the designer were. How does he know what the intentions of the designer are? Well, Maybe he wants the universe to go to oblivion so he can then create a new heavens and a new earth, which is exactly what Revelation 22 says. Uh, if you notice, Christopher has not given any real positive evidence for his worldview. He has not dealt with, with, the, with the fact that the universe exploded into being out of nothing, the extreme fine-tuning that arose from chaos. Uh, how the first life filled with libraries full of a genetic code arose from non-life. How morality arose from uh, materials and how materials have any moral authority over us. In fact, he just called that the, the designer cruel. How does he know cruel if we're just molecules in motion? Where does cruel come from? There's no cruel. There's no truth. There's no nothing. We're just, we're just chemical reactions up here. So if I'm doing something wrong, if you don't agree with me, forgive me, but I have the wrong chemicals. Thank you. Well, first of all, there's obviously no equivalence at all between what I want to persuade you of and what Frank wants to persuade you of. I don't say if you believe with, with me in Revelation, you can be saved and your sins taken away from you. Nor do I say, as Christians tend to, if, you, if you're quite free uh, to disagree with me as long as you're willing to go to hell. Um, it's just not the same. Uh, I, don't, I don't menace people in that way, nor do I give them uh, false promises, neither the blackmail uh, nor the bribery exists in my argument. I just ask you to think for yourselves and consider the evidence. And if you do that, I should have done this in, the, in my first uh, uh, set of remarks. Um, let's just take these um, graffiti on the beach. 
Um, this is one of the oldest arguments in, um, in the business. It, it, it originates from a, a long discredited uh, book by a Cambridge uh, clergyman called Paley, who wrote a book called Natural Theology. He said if you are an aborigine walking along a beach and you come across a, a gold watch ticking, you know not anything about what it's for. You have no idea what, it, what it's for or why it's there. But you know it's not a vegetable. You know it's not a rock. You know it hasn't occurred in nature. It must be there for another, for another reason. Someone must have made this. Um, perfectly decent point to make. But uh, the, the uh, organisms such as ourselves are not mechanisms. They're not wound up. They're not jammed together in this way. And if any of you will cast your eyes over any work uh, about uh, Darwin, the Darwinian alternative explanation for this, the best is actually called The Blind Watchmaker. It's by Richard Dawkins. You'll see that it's, it's, it's perfectly intelligible and well understood and has been computer modeled now to the satisfaction of 99% of uh, all readers in the matter that we know what the building blocks of existence were and how very, very long and haphazard with so much extinction, 99% of, of all species, uh, so much adaptation, uh, so much hit and miss, uh, that it was all put together. Um, there's no mystery about it. The, the non-theistic, the non-deistic view does describe this reality and has more or less mastered the description of it. If you, no, I've got, sorry, I've brought the wrong page of what I wanted to say. Um, if you uh, take the opposite view, here's what you have to think. Uh, Francis Collins, who did the Human Genome Project, reckons that Homo sapiens, he's a great believing Christian, by the way, Dr. Collins, great man. Homo sapiens has been on the Earth for at least 100,000 years, our species, not very long. Some think it may be as many as a quarter of a million years. Uh, Richard Dawkins thinks it could easily be 200,000 years. I don't particularly mind. I'll take, the low, I'll take the low end. Let's take the Christian Dr. Collins's view that we, our, our own primate species, um, has been around on Earth for 100,000 years. Now, if you don't take the view I just offered you, the anti-Paley view, uh, here's what you have to imagine. That for 98,000 of those years, humans were born, most of them actually not being, succeeding in being born because a good percentage, maybe more than half, would have died in the experience of being born, would have died, died in childbirth, many of them taking their mothers with them. Life expectancy, for the first 50 or 60 or 70,000 years or so, actually the first 80,000 of not much more than 25 to 30 years. Mysterious, terrible plagues and diseases and pains. Inexplicable, unanalyzable, incurable. Uh, terrifying events like tidal waves, volcanic eruptions. Purely scary, no idea where this is coming from. Fe fear and trembling. Um, as if that's not bad enough, the prefrontal lobe is rather small of this species, the adrenaline gland is rather bigger than it needs to be, there's a lot of fighting, there's a lot of conflict, uh, there's a lot of warfare over territory, over food, over women, even more casualties, even more suffering, torture, is, is enslavement, all of this. And for the first 98,000 years, heaven, the designer, watches this with perfect indifference as a spectator. And then around two to 3,000 years ago thinks this won't do, we better intervene. These people need a revelation. In fact, they need a savior. So we'll send them one, but we'll send, it, send him or her or whoever uh, to the most remote and illiterate and superstitious part of the Middle East. And then we'll see if the news can spread from there and if anyone will believe it if it's written down. Well, 
they got the last bit right. People are willing to believe that. Um, but I ask you what it is to believe such a thing. Now, a, a hundred years ago, I couldn't have made this point because we wouldn't have had the information on which to base this supposition. We wouldn't have known that something like that is what you'd have to believe. But remember, long before any of this evidence was available, uh, the Christian worldview was already well in place and completely and perfectly believed. So if you believe that any of these beliefs are derived from or originate in a study of evidence, so much the worse for you, because you've just been assured by Dr. Turek that that's not the case. It comes from a faith in revelation. Don't confuse it with evidence. Now, one of the things that uh, atheism is much better at describing in the real world than theism is this. Why is there so much warfare between the faithful? Uh, Frank has just told us that 99% uh, of all religions he thinks are bogus or phony, which must mean also, by the way, that they're evil. Um, which is quite a big admission for him to make, because if someone goes around preaching a bogus and false religion, they're not just giving bad information, they're spreading wicked delusions and trying to uh, get people to believe in, in awful things. So those who say that you can't have morality without religion have suddenly had to make a rather large concession, have they not? That 99% of it is just dead wrong. Um, now, our view of this is that it's not surprising, it's just what, what you would expect if religion was man-made and if it fluctuated depending on the level of culture and climate and other things uh, around the world, religions would keep on being made by men and there have been literally hundreds of thousands of gods whose name, names we know, uh, many of whom have now been forgotten or are no longer worshipped. Well, there are three conceivable explanations for this, or accounts of it, shall we say. One is that all of these religions are true. One is all of them are false. And one is that only one of them is correct. Well, clearly, the first option isn't available to us. They can't all be true. According to Frank, one of them is. It's Christianity. Do you know how many versions of Christianity there are? Mutually incompatible, excommunicating each other, describing each other as antichrist? Would you like me to list them? I bet you if I asked him, he wouldn't say Mormons were Christians. And a Mormon wouldn't think that he can be saved either because he doesn't believe in Joseph Smith's revelation. And the uh, Pope of Rome, the Bishop of Rome, it says that the Roman Catholic Church is the only way to salvation. It's the only true church. The others aren't really Christian at all. So all you're doing is multiplying that difference again, whereas the obvious, the clear, the lucid answer is staring you in the face. It's available to all. There's no mystery to it. This stuff is man-made. No shame in that, I would say. No shame. I mean, after all, so in my submission are our morals and ethics man-made. It's common to us as a matter of human solidarity to know, without being told by revelation from Mount Sinai, a location that's never been discovered, by the way, that uh, a, a, a group of primates that thought that murder, theft, and perjury were okay would not evolve very far or live or survive very long. It just wouldn't happen. We have a duty to each other, um, and we better understand it or die. It's, there is no society that hasn't made or drawn this conclusion. Societies that fail to that practice things like cannibalism and incest literally do die out. They don't survive. They don't adapt. They don't evolve. They don't make it. Um, again, no uh, mystery. But to say that without God we wouldn't know and that without God any evil we did would be thinkable is the precise reverse of the case. I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, brothers, sisters. Is it not rather the case that with God everything is permissible. That once a primate believes he has God on his side, that primate is 
capable of anything. The suicide bombing community, more or less 100% religious. The genital mutilation community, practically 100% religious. The injunctions and warrants in, in the Bible, in the text itself, for slavery, for genocide, inescapably right there and, and acted upon and in the name of God by primates who thought they had God on their side. It is when people think they are God's appointed or anointed that any kind of wickedness is possible. Let me then, let me ask you, rephrase it and ask you the question in reverse. Can you, sir, or can anyone here, name a moral or ethical action or statement that could be made by a believer, a moral or ethical statement or action, made or taken, uttered, that couldn't be uh, made or uttered or taken by me as a non-believer. You have to think quickly. No, you don't. You've got all night. Uh, there's a, I'll give you my email. There's a prize for anyone who can name me the moral action I can't commit that a believer can. Now, I've never had an answer yet. I don't expect to. But if I asked you, think of a wicked action you've heard of that could only have been committed by someone who believed they had God on their side, you've already thought of it. You, know, you, don't, have to, you don't have to hesitate. You just have to think of the last suicide bomber, uh, the last genital mutilation, uh, the last uh, jihad, the last crusade, um, the last alliance between the Vatican and fascism, anything you like, um, and it's done. So it's an insult to be told that without superstition and without the supernatural, we wouldn't know how to treat one another well, we wouldn't know the difference between right and wrong, we couldn't perform a right action or, or, or utter ethical remarks. It's, an, it's a degrading insult, it makes us serfs. It makes us uh, slaves, it makes us people dependent upon a celestial dictatorship that cannot be altered, that watches us while we sleep, that ver whose verdicts cannot be challenged, who can convict us of thought crime. Um, in my judgment, the emancipation of humanity, which has taken a very great deal of time, just as the uh, uh, expansion of our um, life expectancy uh, had to be worked on very hard. If once, when it was left just to God to decide these things, we didn't live very long, couldn't cure any diseases, and didn't know that our planet wasn't the center of the, of the universe. But once this emancipation has begun, I think it's unstoppable. And the emancipation of humanity begins when you throw off the idea that you live in a celestial North Korea, and that only a dictator can give you permission to think or behave well or act morally. Thank you. Thank you. We will now turn to the question and answer session for the speakers between themselves. Each speaker, starting with Dr. Turek, will have the opportunity of asking two questions, two brief questions, of their opponent, who will then give brief replies. Thank you. I can't be erect, I can at least be upright. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't ready, in other words. <clears throat> Christopher. Sir. I gave evidence the universe had a beginning, and it did so with great precision. 
I'd like to ask you a question that I think Leibniz brought up many years ago. If there is no God, why does anything exist? Um, we both have this Navy background. Yes, sir. In Portsmouth, where I'm from, there's an old story about a, a young man taking his captain's examination before a board of admirals. And they say to him, right, your ship is on a lee shore. It's being driven by uh, whatever wind towards the rocks. Um, what are you going to do to get out of this terrible position? He says, I would, uh, I would pile on uh, an extra sail and pull the uh, stern hard to starboard and hope by this means to escape the, uh, to save the ship. And they said, well, going very well, but there's, um, the wind is still blowing, the gale is coming at you still, and the rocks are getting nearer. Now what are you going to do? So I put on more sail and keep the helm hard down to starboard and maintain this position. But yes, but the wind is still blowing you, and it's, the gale force has increased, and the rocks are getting nearer. Now what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'd cram on extra sail and keep the helm hard down to starboard. One of the admirals with rather red-faced exasperation at this point, says, where are you getting all this extra sail from? And the young captain says, well, the same place you're getting all that extra wind from. <laughs> now, either a priori you believe in a creation story, or you do not. I am, I'll just have to say it. I'm one of those people who's meant by Pascal <clears throat> when he says he's writing his pensée to those who are so made that they cannot believe. You have to include me in that. I don't believe in a creator. Um, I don't believe I'm supervised. I don't believe that uh, a, a, a being uh, set the universe in motion. And I well, don't then, know it. Then don't how know, is it wait, set in motion? And I don't know any physicist who does, and I'm not a physicist I quoted myself, a lot of but them I'm already. saying, you, if you, had, you and I had been having this argument in the 18th century, you'd be saying that I should recognize Jesus as my personal savior, and you wouldn't have heard of the Big Bang. I would and have you, heard and of... You, and you don't convince me... Just what does that have to do with you, the question? Just, I, I'll just have to say this. You don't convince me that there's any connection between your faith and any scientific uh, right. observation. There's a difference kind. between but proof I'm not, and persuasion. But I'm, I'm not here to debate physics, and I'm mad. I'm not competent to do so. Okay, so you don't have an answer for that, how the universe came into existence out of nothing. No more than you do, no. Let's move to the second question. If all space, all matter, and all time had a beginning, the cause must be outside you of space, matter, and time. You don't know how it neither do I. Okay? Well, now, th this, this is important, Dr. Taylor, for, because in his book, uh, Christopher Hitchens on page 70 says that um, he knows that this happened without God. That's what you said. It works without God. So no, how so, does it work no, without God? No, I'm sorry. I quote, I think you must be quoting my quotation from Laplace. Uh, no, am I'm I not, not correct? No. <clears throat> Page 70. It works, Laplace says it works without that assumption, yes. Here's what you say. You say, however and critically, we can now do this while dropping, or even if you insist retaining the idea of God, but in either case, the theory works without that assumption. So how does it work That's, without that, that assumption? No, I'm repeating. Uh, first, as you'll notice, I say you can retain the idea if you like. It has no explanatory value. It, but it works without the assumption as well as it works how, with it. How does it work without? And I'm, quote, I'm referring back to what the great astronomer and physicist Laplace said when asked by the emperor, when, he was, when he'd shown him his working model of the universe, and the emperor said, well, there doesn't seem to be a god in this. Laplace was centuries ago, Christopher. Laplace said, yes. We've advanced in physics La, 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 since Laplace then. Said, we know Laplace other said, things. Your majesty, it works without that assumption. I'm simply re-quoting him 
and I'm saying, and you can retain the idea if you like. You're not going to convince me, and I don't think you've convinced anyone in the audience, that you know very much more about the origins of the universe than they did. It's an implication. And that would be oh, true if you, right. even if you knew more about it's it than question, I do, though. which you may well. Mr. Hedrins, yes. would you like to ask a question of Dr. Turek? Um, yes, I'd like to ask him what kind of Christian he is um, and who are and who are not uh, Christians, in his view, who claim to be. I'm a non-denominational Christian. I believe that anyone who believes that Jesus died and rose again for their sins is a Christian. As simple as that. So it doesn't matter to you whether someone's a Catholic or a Mormon? Does it, well, no. I, I don't, Mormons don't believe what, what I just said. Mormons have a works theology. Catholics, there's a debate over whether Catholics have a works theology. Recently, Benedict has said no. So, yeah, that's fine. Can I, am I allowed to ask without cheating to rephrase the question in a different way, very crisply? Very crisply. Suppose I was a baby being born in Saudi Arabia now. Would you wish me to be brought up as a Wahhabi or as an atheist? Absolutely an atheist. I'm with you on that. Good. Okay, thanks. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? Were you seriously asking me? <laughs> Second question. Please be brief. Be brief. Be brief. And for response, please be brief. Oh, obviously. Uh, you mentioned that um, you have all these moral issues with Christianity. Uh, where do you get your morality from if we're just molecules in motion? What is morality? Who says we're just molecules in motion? You're a materialist. What else could you be? We're fairly highly evolved primates who have a need, an innate need, for and recognition of human solidarity. You can call that morals if you wish. I think I would. It's only uh, good people, but a lot of people, they say are born in the, made in the image of God, are born as psychopaths and sociopaths. They don't feel this need. Indeed, they enjoy violating it. I don't know where, uh, where that fits in, particularly to God's plan, but it's been put like this. Left to themselves, good people will do as much good as they can. Wicked people will do as much ill as they can. If you want to get a good person to do an evil thing, you make him religious. What do you mean by good? Where does good come Dr. from? Dr. Turek, I believe that would be a third question, and we have to. <laughs> so, uh, it's so, same I'm, place I'm as trying your, to get him to answer my the sale, my, sir, sir, my sale is coming from the same place as your wind. My sale is just a bit more solid, that's all. You don't want any of my wind. I, I, I I'm would from politely Jersey. decline. What's <clears throat> the Another question. Final question. Um, is it not the case that the spread of Christianity, about which you spoke so warmly and affectingly in your opening remarks, attributing it to its in, the innate truth of the Bible story, uh, was spread by that means or because the Emperor Constantine decided to make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire? Which, in your view, contributed more to the spread of the faith? Uh, the Holy Spirit. I rest my case. <laughs> Thank you for that very brief answer. Now we will turn the floor over to the audience. And I believe there are ushers in the room with microphones. Excellent. Uh, Frank, I had a quick question. Just to be clear something. You said that only... Uh, intelligent creatures can create something, correct? Uh, oh, intelli intelligent beings. I said that specified complexity requires a mind. It requires intelligence. Right, well, either way, why, why is God a man? Why don't you see God as a woman? 
Why do I see God as a as a woman? Oh yeah. Why, why don't you see God as a woman? Women's women well, many are men birth do givers. See, do see women as gods. I understand that, but I, I'm just taking from the uh, from the Christian theology that he's referred to as a man. But since God is spirit, he doesn't have a uh, he doesn't have a gender, and we don't call him an it because he's not an impersonal force. So the only two categories we know are men and women. So we attribute man or a male uh, God, and he's referred to as father in the Bible. But you notice that Jesus kind of had some uh, qualities of a woman, too. On one hand, he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. On the other hand, he's saying, consider the lilies. So he kind of had both going there. You say consider the lilies when he's telling people they don't need to work, they don't need to practice thrift, they don't need to care for their families. Um, that's not exactly a womanly thing to be saying. Uh, C.S. Lewis is quite right on this point. Unless he was the son of God, all his preachings are not just rubbish, but evil rubbish. And he wasn't the son of God. Incidentally, to enable as many people as possible to speak, and there's a lot of people who wish to speak, Please, we will restrict you to no follow-up questions. So ask no. a question, the speaker will respond, and then we will move on. Thank you. You have to give it some well -y. Now, the question was, he asked, did I ask Christopher during the Q&A, where do your morals come if you don't believe in Christianity? I don't think you have to believe in Christianity to know right from wrong. I think people from the dawn of time have known right from wrong. It's called the moral law written on their hearts, even from a biblical perspective. Because before there was any Bible, uh, God wipes out the entire generation of Noah. They didn't have a Bible. So you don't need the Bible to know right from wrong. It might help you on certain specific areas, but general right and wrong is known because it's written on your heart, which is a revelation from God. How convenient. That's the kind of God we have, Christopher, yes. Uh, Frank. Yes, right. sir. Uh, first of all, how can you dis uh, completely discard all other religions um, have you looked into every single one, made sure that, the, that none of them make, make as much sense to you as Christianity? And in addition to that, do, don't the uh, Muslims also believe Jesus to be maybe not the Savior, but a Savior in general? Does that make them kind of an offshoot of Christianity, which they technically are? No, Muslims are, are not, uh, they don't believe Jesus died, much less rose from the dead. Surah 4 says that he did not die. And so if and what they try and say, and as, as Christopher will tell you, and I will tell you too, the Quran was standardized in about 650 AD by the third Muslim caliph. Now that is 600 years after Jesus's documents were written, or documents about Jesus, so I'm going to uh, believe that the documents that were written in the first century are more accurate about Jesus than the ones that were written 600 years later. Now I didn't say all religions are totally false, I said, there's some, most religions have some truth in them, but you wouldn't believe in them. I'm saying where they deviate from what I think is true, which happens to be the Bible, and the reason I think the Bible is true is, I'd have to go through a, a whole argument here, but that's what we do, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, because I think miracles confirm that Jesus really was the Son of God, and if he really was God, then whatever he teaches is true, and he taught the entire Old Testament was the Word of God, 
He promised the New Testament, and, the, and the, the documents that we have now are what the followers of Jesus wrote down. So anywhere they deviate from the Bible, I think they're wrong. Well, not the least of the vices of the Quran is that it's largely a plagiarism from Jewish and Christian predecessors. And what it says about Jesus is that he may have been a prophet. Um, they, by the way, the Quran says that he was born of a virgin, which is only said in one book, I think, of the New Testament. Uh, uh, but that he was not crucified. The Jews conspired to have someone else crucified in his place. So the question of resurrection doesn't come up. But if you look in the, um, in the Christian Bible, uh, you hit with just as many difficulties and contradictions as that. Uh, as I say, only, only one mention of the virgin birth, only one gospel that says that the Jews asked for the crucifixion to be inflicted on them to the ultimate generation as a crime. Um, two different accounts of the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, only one mention of the flight into Egypt, uh, not mentioned in the other Gospels. Um, only one mention of the earthquake that accompanied the crucifixion, which uh, is, is contained in no other story or record kept in the greater Jerusalem area. Uh, only one that says that the graves all opened in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion and everybody was resurrected and all the graves were emptied and people uh, climbed out of them and, and greeted their old friends in the street, another thing that you'd think would have attracted the attention of chroniclers if it had occurred, as well as seeming to make resurrection a rather trivial and commonplace and everyday occurrence. Anyone who believes that this stuff isn't man-made has a great deal of explaining to do. Can I follow on to that, By just briefly? Certainly. Uh, Christopher, you're a journalist, and I might add a good journalist. I enjoy many of your articles. Uh, when you write an article about a particular event, and, and three other writers write about that same event, do you expect them to say all the same things? No, very much. I okay, say good. this in my book. That's why I don't so believe. That's why, but, but I'm not asking people to believe that if they don't follow my account, they can't be saved and indeed may be condemned. So you, you, have no, you have no knowledge of what ought to be an axiom, really, or at any rate, a very strong injunction. Extraordinary claims should require pretty extraordinary evidence. And how do you define that? And, this, and these, these extraordinary evidence. claims have no non-contradictory uh, uh, eyewitness attestation of any kind at all. They can quite safely be dismissed as belonging to the prehistoric era. There are 84 era. details in the book of Acts alone from chapter 13 to the end of the book that have been verified as eyewitness testimony by Roman historian Colin Hemmer. 84 details, eyewitness details, only could have been known by an eyewitness. The, the Acts of the Apostles? Yes. There's no independent, there's no, the, none of the Gospels are written by anyone who was an eyewitness or present at the time of the supposed life of Jesus of Nazareth. John? No. John these, wasn't these are, there. These are, these, are, these are full of later accretions. That's why they're so full of contradictions. Well, we could have a whole other debate, but you can get his book no one, and my no book. One's got, no one's got, no one's got, no one's been able to date the Gospels to anything, anything like closer than about 20 years after the supposed events. That's a long, long time in which uh, a rumor could get started. Takes at least two generations for... Let's now okay, move so. to the next question from the audience. Um, hi, I'm not really sure how to phrase this question, so just bear with me. Okay. Either can answer. But how do you explain um, biblical prophecies? Um, how, how do you, ex you know, like, the fact that the Old Testament, thousands and thousands of years before Jesus Christ entered into the world, how is it that they prophesied when he was going to come, how he was going to enter into the world, um, where he was going to be born, um, how he was going to die, who was going to kill, crucify him, who he would be crucified with, where he would be crucified. Um, I've got and, no and problem the, with it. And the fact that he rose, that he rose from the dead. 
three days later. How do you explain that that was prophesied thousands of years before it actually happened? I personally just want to know. <laughs> well, not all those events are as precisely uh, foretold. That's why the Jews in whose, in whose book these um, premonitions or foreshadowings occur do not believe the Messiah has yet made his appearance. Um, they, well, in my submission, quite uh, right to uh, be doing that, though I think they're wasting their time uh, waiting as well. Uh, for, just to give you one example, it is said in the King James Version of the Bible, the one that was hammered together in England in the early 1600s by a committee, the best book ever written by a committee, certainly the best written, but nonetheless, the work of many inexpert hands translating from earlier Greek and Hebrew work, say a virgin will conceive. Uh, it's in Isaiah. In fact, the word in Hebrew is Alma, which simply means young woman. It doesn't make any reference to virgin, virginity at all. Um, the other prophecies that are uh, promised to the re relevant king um, in that uh, section of Isaiah, all of them fail to come true, even in the action as described in that book of Isaiah. Um, however, the New Testament, you'll have to notice when you read it, says when, for example, Jesus goes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it says, thus it was fulfilled as scripture had foretold that the Son of Man will come on an ass. Well, if you know your, you've, what the prophecy is, and if you want people to think you're fulfilling it, you can just, just say, well, that's what we'll do, we'll produce a donkey. But that's not exactly seeing a prophecy come true. That's reverse engineering and self-fulfilling prophecy. I actually agree with Jesus also, happened, Jesus also prophesied that he will come back uh, in the lifetime of those who are oh, his okay. listeners and auditors, and that is the prophecy. Actually, that's Chris, that's not true. In Matthew 24, he's predicting he would come back in judgment on Jerusalem, not that he would come back well, in that generation. Secondly, I agree with you on, you, some of these can be contrived, like coming in on a, on a donkey, I understand that, but there are some, like he will be both God and man, and that he will come, the Lord you seek will come to your temple in Malachi 3. Uh, also the fact, well, that, I guess that could be contrived too. Um, yes. But <laughs> I correct you myself think? here. However, um, please make it brief. Brief. Isaiah 53. Go read Isaiah 53 for yourself. And we have chapter 13 in our book that goes into this. Read Isaiah 53, which is known to have been written well prior to Jesus. In fact, it was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered. Probably the most incredible scroll, 24 feet long. The entire book of Isaiah dated from at least 100 BC. When you read Isaiah 53, uh, you will see how that points forward to Jesus. One other thing, if you want a book on this, Dr. Michael Brown has written a book. He's a Messianic Jew on this. It has to do with Old Testament prophecy. Uh, so there's a lot more to this than we can deal with in a one-minute response. Yes, I want to continue the nautical metaphor. I suspect you two are like ships passing in the night because the, uh, the topic of debate is which better explains reality, uh, theism or atheism. But neither of you have told us what you take reality to consist of. Uh, so this is a question for both of the speakers. Uh, what is your conception of reality? Does it in particular include um, angels? Does it include uh, the devil? Does it include uh, immortal souls? Does it include demons and spirits? Or does it not include those things? What, uh, what for you is the, the furniture of reality? Well, I would agree with, obviously, if I believe the Bible, I agree with all those things you just mentioned. But when, when I was thinking about this debate, 
reality, the first thing you've got to start with is, is, is the classic question. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? So we start there, and then we move forward from that. And then we went into the fine-tuning of the universe, how the universe is precisely tweaked. And then we talked about uh, the specified complexity in life and the moral law and the order and uh, immaterial reality known as the laws of logic and mathematics. I think all those things are real. I think morality's real. I think mathematics are real. I think the laws of logic are real. I think theism better explains that than does atheism. So that's why I keep asking Christopher, how, how did the universe come into existence? What should, where does morality come from if you're a materialist? Where do the laws of logic come from if you're a materialist? I haven't heard many answers yet. See, it would, it, you'd do better if you said that since there are such things as angels and demons and evil spirits as you believe, you'd need a god for them to be true. And I think you'd be right. You'd be on much safer ground. How could that be happening? How could Jesus of Nazareth make a, a cluster of devils leave a madman and go into a herd of pigs that would then commit suicide? A wondrous miracle, if ever I've heard of one. Um, if there was no supernatural dimension, if there was no God. That's the only well, place, by no, the way. You, in order to believe that, you would have to believe in the supernatural, but I think I did say, perhaps I should have spent more time saying so, that I'm a, I'm a materialist and I do not believe there is a supernatural or paranormal dimension to existence. He doesn't believe that, but there are immaterial realities. He just used one, the laws of logic. Where does that come from? Let's move to the next question. A question for Christopher. Um, do you believe in moral absolutism, absolute right and wrong? Um, well, the, 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 the best known example of this is what's known as the golden rule. That, that seems to be common to all societies. Um, it's uh, it long predates Christianity. It's certainly said by a version of it by Rabbi Hillel, Babylonian rabbi, and it's it's findable in the form of "Don't do to someone else what would be what would be repulsive to you." Um, in the Analects of Confucius, and most people think of that as being, so to say, intelligible, absolute, and a basis for morality. The difficulty with it is, and the reason why I, I am in doubt about absolutism is that a law like that is really only as good as the person who's uttering it. After all, uh, confronted with Charles Manson, am I supposed not to do to him anything I wouldn't want done to myself? Self-evidently absurd. So fortunately, we're given a sense of proportion and of self-preservation, uh, along with, or we, we, we I said, yeah, I just said we're given it. You know how people talk, um, how sloppily one can suddenly speak. Um, we have, by trial and error, learned the value of a sense of proportion along with the need for human solidarity. After all, the, the, it's only in the English version um, that the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. In Hebrew, it says, thou shalt do no murder. Then the question is, which killing is murder, which is not? I'm willing to spend all night talking about whether or not uh, the, the fetus is a human thing, entity, or not. Um, and also, if, even if it is, whether, whether and in what circumstances it would be lawful to take its life. I very much doubt that anyone will come up with an absolute on that. But I think we would all know what the perils of the relative were as well. So negotiating this is why we need things that are actually, when put into practice, uh, by no means immaterial. Uh, things like logic why is and the, irony. Why is uh, human solidarity good? You just imported another moral absolute there. Well, I think it's good for us. What, what does good mean? It's, it's useful. It means we carry on living. Rather hard and large question. So let's move to hopefully... It's only hard for an atheist. Well, it's not no, hard no, no, for me. I, no, I accept the challenge. It's, not, but it's saying 
saying, but, I, but I've solved your problem for you. The, uh, I, know, I know where good comes from. God gives it to you. That's absolutely advanced the argument, not by a single step. It's like saying, do we have free will or not? My answer is, because I believe in irony as a non-material force as well, yes, I think we do because we have no choice. <laughs> you, however, your position, is, your position is much more contradictory and much less ironic. You say, of course we have free will. The boss says so. <laughs> that won't do in any uh, courtroom or seminar room at all, sir. Did those chemicals just cause it you to works, say you have free will? It all works without that assumption. Move to the next question. Uh, this is just a small comment uh, for, the, for both speakers. Um, in Ephesians 4, 5, it says that, sh that there should be one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Um, and you guys discuss saying that there's many different Christian religions, but I encourage you to explore the Oriental Orthodox Church, which does not deviate from the apostolic roots. Um, in the first century, when, when the disciples and the apostles were, began preaching with, when the descent of the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, which is considered the birthday of the church because they couldn't preach without the Holy Spirit, um, when the faith arrived to these churches in different areas of the world, in around the fourth century is when the split of the, in the Council of Chalcedon between the Oriental Could and Greek Orthodox churches. Could we please ask a question briefly in one sentence? Okay, it's just a comment, really. It's not really a question just to explore the Oriental Orthodox churches and how they didn't deviate from the apostolic yeah. faith. Well, I, I can answer that because I'm a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. What was that? I can answer that because I'm one of the few people here who's a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, which does indeed have a claim to be the oldest and original Christian church. Um, I joined it on the same day as I was married into it, which meant I had to pay not one bribe but two <laughs> to the archbishop, in fact, the autocephalous head of that church in Cyprus, uh, Archbishop Chrysostomos who got two payments instead of one, said, without any preparation, said, all right, I make you uh, Orthodox in the morning so you can get married to a Greek Orthodox woman and please her parents in the afternoon. He was later conspicuous for being a gun runner to the Serbian uh, death squads in the Yugoslav Civil War. You're welcome to him and all like him. And now the Russian Orthodox Church has become the official state church of Vladimir Putin's dictatorship in Moscow and has produced icons, I can show them to you, and you can look them up on the web, icons that show Joseph Stalin with a halo around his head, fully baptized into the church. You're welcome to that lot too. Did Stalin do something really wrong? Hmm? It's, um, the, well, it doesn't seem the Orthodox Church thinks so. Well, how, I mean, you're, you're going after the church, why not go it after Stalin? Me, you see, you, it seems to me I've just demonstrated something to you that you're very reluctant to to notice that proclaiming a belief in God doesn't seem to stop people behaving badly. It doesn't mean God doesn't Has exist. Has this ob observation completely escaped you? Not just doing bad things, but saying bad things. Also saying Christianity predicts will be bad. Also That's why we need a savior. Well, I could have predicted that. Mr. Hitchens, and my prophecy would have come true. Um, my, my question is for uh, Christopher. Um, when we talk about things like love, does that exists outside of our minds, um, or is it just an evolutionary adaptation um, to make life more useful for us? Okay. Um, I think a great cultural and, and in a way intellectual problem is this, is, to, uh, is not to allow materialism to be purely arid. 
I mean, I think innate in humans also is a need for, let's say, the transcendent uh, or the numinous, which comes to us with the experience, say, of music, uh, poetry, um, landscape, um, and love. Um, you wouldn't trust anyone who looked at me blankly at this point and wondered, what is this guy talking about? There would be people who were deaf uh, in that way, but generally speaking, everyone has a rough idea of what I'm talking about. It's, it's to do with separating the numinous and the transcendent from the supernatural or the superstitious. I'll give you an example. Dr. Um, Frank Collins, who I was talking to you about earlier, the um, Christian uh, supervisor of the Human Genome Project, wonderful guy, he says in his book that he, he's an outdoorsman. He went hiking um, at somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, I think, and in the wilderness, on some brilliant crystal clear day, he came across a, a frozen waterfall which had frozen in three streams, three. And he said at, at, at that point, he fell to his knees and accepted Jesus as his personal savior. That, that, would, that would be a very good way of separating what I think of as the, the numinous and the transcendent from the supernatural or the superstitious. Wouldn't it be just as much of a statement if he'd said, I accepted the revelation of the prophet Muhammad? Or did there have to be four streams? Or would two not have been enough? One, one I can understand, people being overawed, and the other I cannot. So that's the, that's the, that's the way I would try and resolve this, uh, this, this uh, emotional discrepancy. Well, you, you know there's a, a transcendent out there. That we, that's what you just said, Christopher. But there's yes. only two choices, law of non-contradiction, or law of the excluded middle, I should say. It's either natural or supernatural. There's no in-between. And yes. it's either chemicals or it's not chemicals. Which is it? which certainly, in my, in my judgment, is not supernatural and doesn't require it. Pe people like myself who don't believe in the supernatural are not immune from the lure of the transcendent. Anyway, I am a member of an only partly rational primate species. I'm not, I'm not actually hardwired to be smart all the time. I'm, a lot of the time I'm under all kinds of delusions, uh, some of them wishful. Um, I try and guard against them in myself and I try and ridicule them in other people. Um, as to, is it chemical? Well, it certainly is not not chemical. I mean, the, is it, there are, there is are anything of, beyond the of, chemical? Or is love of, just chemicals? There are a lot of chemical reactions keeping me in place here. So the, the option of it not being chemical does not exist. Is it only chemical? The, uh, the likelihood that it's chemical is very strong. Let's move to the next question. Only chemical. Uh, a lot of the theist argument relied on uh, the Big Bang and the fact that the universe says the singularity has a, a finite beginning. Um, but in physics, if the, the mass of the universe is great enough, the force of gravity will eventually contract the universe, and we could possibly have another Big Bang again. If that's the case, uh, what's your explanation for the need for a creator in an infinite universe? Uh, because the universe can't be infinite due to the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics will not allow the universe to collapse back and, re and go back and forth unendingly. I'll give you an example. If I were to take a basketball right now here and drop it, how high would it drop, or how high would it bounce again? Would it bounce as high as I dropped it from? No, it's gonna lose energy every time until ultimately it's gonna peter out. Secondly, uh, the, um, you know how you get older, you start to lose your train of, uh, train of, uh, uh, oh, oh, the WMAP satellite, which was uh, put up in 2003, as Christopher pointed out rightly, uh, discovered that the universe is now accelerating and it will expand forever. So, it, at least through the scientific evidence at this point. Thirdly, time had a beginning according to Einstein and you can't traverse an infinite number of moments. 
If there were an infinite number of moments before today, today never would have gotten here. So time had a beginning as well. So the universe is not eternal, therefore it needs a cause outside itself. And as I mentioned before, that cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial, and also personal to go from a state of non-existence to a state of existence. But according to you, sir, uh, the creator isn't bound by these thermodynamic laws because when I pointed out the the imminence of nothingness a while ago, you did say, maybe God wants that so he can begin all over again. And the, maybe he does. You, the I mean, creator you're, you're, is you're not free, bound by the second if, law of if, thermodynamics. If, if this being exists, you're free to attribute any quality to him that you like. No, what I'm saying is... It's is just that you it, claim it, to know his mind. That's the bit where I part company with you. If God wants the universe to ultimately peter out, he can do that. But if he wants to intervene and stop it, he can also do that as well. And that's what Revelation 22 says. Yeah, but that's not the second law of thermodynamics, is it? So why do you bother with the thermodynamics? What is law? not the second law of thermodynamics? The second law of thermodynamics helps establish that there was a creator. To get to the Bible, you have to go through several steps and see if there were miracles after the first one. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then whatever he teaches, since he's God, is true. But then you've just misled, you've given a misleading to answer to the gentleman. You said, no, it couldn't happen. That what could couldn't be an, happen? There, could be, there couldn't be another Big Bang. There could, there could if the creator According to it. the current laws of nature. Let us move to our very Natural patient law. audience members. Which mean nothing to you. This, this question is for Christopher. Um, you said you're an intelligent primate. And I just wanted to know, do intelligent primates have souls? And if so, what happens when you die? Um, I actually think, I, I hope I said, I was a member of an intelligent primate species. I wouldn't want to push myself forward. Um, one could have a soul and uh, not an afterlife. There could be an afterlife and no God. There could be a God and no afterlife. Uh, the, very, the, the likeliest thing, it seems to me, is that death is final. No, I didn't say that means, it doesn't mean there's no soul. I, I seem to operate without that assumption. But I would, but I would use the word soulless in a way um, aesthetically as a, as, a, as, a, as a pejorative. And I find the, the use of um, transcendental and numinous terms to be occasionally um, gratifying. Now we have Four minutes for questions, which allows us three brief questions and three brief responses. Uh, and then we will turn to the closing statements. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about you, Frank. I would yield my closing statement time to allow more questions because there are so many hands up, have been up for so long. I do have a closing statement I need to make. Oh, all right. That's okay. Well, I'll yield mine. <laughs> we have an additional five minutes for questions. Thank you. <laughs> the title of this is What Best Explains Reality? Uh, perhaps following the previous questioner, um, the United Nations, uh, I believe starting with Pakistan, uh, Pakistan tried to have a resolution that made the criticism of religion uh, unacceptable. I just would quickly want to get particularly Mr. Hitchens's uh, response to that, and also because you did write the introduction to Sir Kingsley Amos's book on everyday drinking, what's your favorite drink? In reverse order, then, uh, Johnny, uh, Johnny Walker Black Label with Perrier as the delivery system. Uh, but, but no ice. Ice is a, is a, can, be a, can be a mistake. Um, followed by a couple of bottles of Pinot Noir. Um, with lunch, only, I mean. Um, with food. Very important to keep the food intake up. The United Nations is exceeding its authority in trying to limit uh, any, any form of speech on any subject. 
Uh, I think it's particularly absurd for uh, any attempt to be made to limit the criticism of religion precisely because religion makes such large claims for itself. The, the Quran, for example, claims to be the last and final revelation from God. No further words are necessary after this immaculate recitation has been completed. It's therefore, in my view, implicitly very totalitarian. It says you can't need anything more. And it, and it can be death, uh, not just to challenge it, but to say that there have been any subsequent revelations. There are Ahmadi Muslims, for example. They're a small minority uh, who believe there may have been a later revelation. Um, and there are, in the Muslim world, the Baha'i sect, which, whose, whose leader was claimed by himself at least to be a prophet. Therefore, they're punishable by death also. Uh, people who say that not only are we going to tell you what to do in that tone of voice, but you also can't criticize us, you can't have another opinion, have just revealed uh, what the extraordinary dangers of the, of the um, religious mentality are and have confirmed that it is simply another form of mind-forged, man-made manacle. Oh, okay. um, this is specifically for Christopher, but I guess it could go both ways. Um, as a materialist who is an admitted evolutionist who believes that all morals are derived from survival of the fittest and passing on your genes and surviving better, um, how do you find purpose in life outside of having sex and making babies? I'm glad you left that in, I must say. <laughs> um, well, I suppose, let me see what makes me happy. Contemplating the misfortunes of other people. Um, <laughs> Uh, vindication makes me happy, uh, being proved right, um, irony makes me happy. Um, by the way, the Quran doesn't forbid uh, whiskey, it only forbids wine. Just meant, thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> I, think, I think it was Tertullian, one of the early Christian fathers, who said, you know how the Christians always have a very hard time picturing what heaven would be like? They can do a hell very easily, and they do, but heaven, you know, it sounds boring just to be praising the dictator for the rest of, uh, well, for eternity. Um, but Tertullian, perhaps wanting to spice things up a bit, said, well, look, you could always have the pleasure of contemplating the tortures of the damned in hell when the praise is Paul. And I must say, I do get pleasure from that too. Well, it's a good question. I mean, what is life all about? What is the purpose? I mean, is life just a glorified monopoly game? Get a whole bunch of stuff now because when the game is over, it's all going to go back in the box? I think there's more to it than that. Um, this question is for Frank. Um, if Christianity is based in personal faith and, on, and demonstrates the defying of physical laws in, in science, why do you use scientific evidence um, based in the objective physical realm to explain it? Where is your physical evidence? I don't know if I follow the question. Christianity isn't necessarily based on faith. That's what I said before. You have to have belief in before you get to belief that. That's, that's interesting. You, I, I'm sorry, heard, believe that many, before you get the belief in. I said it backwards. I've heard you have many, to believe I've heard, that God exists before you put your trust in him. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I've heard it said very often that you have to have faith in order to believe. You can't, you can't derive faith from evidence. It would be too easy. It's two different kinds you of faith, take, Christopher, you have to take, as I mentioned. It's called, it's called the leap. The let's, problem is you have to keep on making that leap. Let's just move now to the next question. Thank you, Mr. Hedgins, Dr. Turek. Hi, my question's for Christopher. Um, if you believe in no moral absolutes, do you believe in consequences for whatever is relatively wrong? 
because if there are no eternal consequences, um, and like let's say I was to find it, like when you're saying human solidarity, can you expand on that and kind of explain why something is wrong? Because if people's wrong and right are different, then what's, why, where's their point? What consequences are there? Well, I'd like to, I would like to put myself in the safe keeping of the audience and ask, in all fairness, has, have I not answered that question more than once already? But if you insist on it again, I will simply say this, and I'll, I'll, have, I'll have to again do it in reverse order. Belief in the supernatural, or in an afterlife, or in a god, or a creator, has not had the effect of making those who profess the belief behave more morally or ethically. I return you also to the question that I asked, which you might want to give an answer to, or consider an answer to. Um, it, what moral action or ethical statement am I forbidden to make because I'm not a believer, that a believer could make? Uh, you see, I, I mean, I think I have been over this ground before. There's also the question of, it's a word that hasn't come up much this evening, but it might as well, capitally, evidence. There doesn't seem to be any evidence at all of an afterlife in which all wrongs are righted and all sins are punished. But there is a thing called law, and there is a thing called human solidarity, with which we attempt to make life more fair and more just in the only life that we know we've got. And we'd have to do that, even if, and, and religious societies do do that, even if we thought there was a higher justice and a, and, a, and a life to come. We would still have to act as if we had to discipline ourselves and others in the, in the here and now. So adding the supernatural dimension to it, making the God assumption, doesn't make any of these urgent questions, how shall we live with each other, what are our duties, any easier to solve. Contrary to, I think, uh, what Christopher is implying there, Christ, Christ's central purpose was not to come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Uh, Mr. Hitchens, um, I was just wondering, do you believe that um, religion has some origin in um, the need for political leaders in early human civilization to instill a fear and sense of authority in the ruled classes? Well, the, the, there is a functional and also a functionalist and man-made element to religion isn't doubted by anyone, certainly not by Frank Troy. He would say about the Aztec priesthood, that's all it was, was a means of coercion by the ruling class and a means of ter terrifying others and a means of making them believe that there was a priesthood that c could control things like eclipses or heal things like plagues. Yes, of course. When anyone looks at anyone else's religion, they see the trick being pulled easily. Uh, everyone in this room is an atheist. There's not one of you who isn't. You don't believe in uh, the Temple of Diana at Ephesus. You don't believe in uh, the Egyptian Thor. You, know, you don't believe in Odin. Um, you don't believe in Huatzacapotl, or the other Aztec gods. None of you do. You're all atheists as far as that's concerned. Uh, and some of you believe that one of these is okay and, might, and is true. I just say that um, I'll go you one better and say, I'll be an atheist and I'll be a consistent one. I'm not an atheist. I mean, uh, I don't believe in Zeus or any of those other gods because all those other gods were inside the world. We have evidence that suggests that there's a being outside the world that created the universe. That's why I believe in him. We have time for one final question before Dr. Turek's closing statement. Usher, choose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, this is to Frank, but I would like Christopher's opinion on this as well. Uh, with regards to your mention of Paley's argument and your analogies, how do you grade complexity? Is there a cutoff point? And does it ever seem like you're taking credit away from the chaotic nature of chance and giving it to God? Okay, chance is not a cause. Chance is a word we use to, that describe, to, uh, a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. If I were to take out a coin right now and flip it, uh, what are the chances it would come up heads? You say 50%. But what causes it to come up heads? Is it chance? No, chance doesn't do anything. What causes it to come up heads is the amount of force I put in it, the, the wind in the room, how high it is. If we could calculate all of those forces with precision, we could predict 100% every time, whether it's going to come up heads or tails. So chance doesn't do anybody any good. We, we got so time for one. wasn't to me. Can, 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 can I suggest one thing? This isn't fair for me to do a closing statement and not him. I don't mind staying longer to have him do a closing statement, and I'd prefer for him to give one. And secondly, if I'll stay for a few more questions if you want, if Christopher will as well. Yes. No. Okay, okay, I got them to, I got them to beg. Um, first law of show business, keep them wanting more. I don't, I don't want to stay any, any later because I'm extremely tired and have a very early start in the morning. But um, I do want to, um, and also the, the moment is coming when I won't be nice to anyone who hasn't got a receipt because this is America and I have product to move. Um, uh, Go ahead. Sir. Look, so I, I think um, if you want a closing statement from me, I'll, I'll keep it very brief. I, I haven't had, uh, this will be, I, I can't remember now how many, how many uh, public events this would count as. No one has even attempted to answer my central question, which is this. Uh, why, why is there any reason to believe that I'm a, I must be a less ethical person or have less morality available to me because I do not believe in a supernatural dictatorship. Why am I not just an, an ADist? In other words, I don't believe there was a prime mover or any need, or any need to, to believe in it. In other words, there is nothing left unexplained if that assumption is not made. That's why I'm an ADist. Why am I, why am I an, an atheist? Because I don't believe there has been a revelation of God. I don't believe he's ever shown himself to us. I think that the books in which this is claimed to have done, occurred are self-evidently man-made and show many, many signs of contradiction, of fabrication, of myth and legend, and of having been, as H.L. Mencken uh, bluntly puts it, uh, tampered with, and also because they cannot all be true, and they set people at odds with each other. Um, I was once told by a, uh, I was asked a question in turn, by a famous religious broadcaster on the air. He said, you have to imagine the following. You are in a strange city, and it's late in the evening, and you don't know anyone, and you don't know your way around, and, and the night is coming on, and you see coming towards you a group of men. Now he says, you must answer this question. He said, do you feel better or worse, happier or less happy, safer or less safe, once you know that these men are coming from a prayer meeting? In my book, I try and answer the question. I say, well, just without leaving the letter B, I have been in those circumstances in the following cities, Belfast, Beirut, uh, Bombay, uh, Baghdad, and one other. Let's just do the first four. If anyone's ever spent any time in Belfast, they'd know right away 
to try and find a place of hiding and safety if they were caught on the streets when the churches were letting people out at, at, at dusk. Or there isn't, there's hardly been a non-religious murder uh, in Belfast in the last 30 years. It's, it's a very dangerous place to be once the religious are, are, are abroad, especially if it's gangs of men, as specified in the question. Uh, everything, about, everything about Beirut could be absolutely wonderful. It's a, it's a jewel of a city on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, it's the capital of a, of a wonderful country that has all kinds of, of resources um, and all kinds of attractions. And it's, a, it's been, for decades, a hellhole because of the confessional system that insists that political power is allocated only to people who can show that they're members of a faith. It doesn't particularly matter in the Lebanese constitution which faith, there's a pecking order, um, but it has to be confessional. And as a result, Lebanon is retarded in, in its development, uh, unsafe at almost any time of day, most especially when the churches and the mosques are letting people out onto the street. That's when to be most careful. Uh, to say that this was true in, in, in Belgrade and to say what, the, what effect religion had um, in the breakup of Yugoslavia, there is no ethnic difference between being a Serb and a Croat, for example, none whatever. Uh, it's a difference between, only between being Eastern Orthodox in the case of the Serb and Roman Catholic in the case of the Croat. And that's a killing matter. All across Western Herzegovina and Bosnia and larger tracts of the rest of the country, as soon as the churches started to let people out, having preached their doctrine, about the, the heretical nature of the other Christians, the other believers, every kind of mayhem was let loose. Again, I say, this is not done in the name of God, as people say. Uh, it's not done in the name of religion. Uh, that's, not, that's not an out that I think can be offered. It's done because of religion. It arises because of the very preachments that are in the text. And it, and it, and it relies ultimately and derives ultimately from the servile belief that our problems can be solved if we will only refer them upward to a supernatural despotism, to a dictator whose verdicts cannot be challenged, to a dictator who, so far from giving us free will, says we can be convicted of thought crime, uh, sends us to an eternity of punishment for things we may have thought in, in our sleep or, or, or thought and not yet done. Um, as I say, I'll close on, on this, the, the emancipation of humanity demands first and foremost the emancipation of the idea of a supernatural dictator. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out, folks. I know it's late. I'll try and be brief. I'll go into Jersey mode. First of all, thank you very much. And um, I just want to point out one thing. I agree with a lot of Christopher's book. But if you look at the tone of his book, if you had to sum it up in one phrase, it would be this. There is no God, and I hate him. Christopher calls himself an anti-theist. He's not an atheist, he's an anti-theist. The second major way of summarizing the book, I think, is this way. Since religious people have done evil things, God doesn't exist. In logic, that's called a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Of course we all do evil things. I do evil things. That doesn't mean God doesn't exist. In fact, I agree with Christopher on many things. I think many religious people have behaved terribly. I think many religious beliefs are false and can't be justified. I don't think you need to believe in God to know basic right and wrong or to be moral. I'm just saying that atheists can't justify morality. You don't need the Bible or any other religious book to know basic right and wrong. 
So I agree with Christopher on many of these things, but none of these things, or none of the things he's brought up today, no arguments, are really arguments against the existence of God. God could still exist even if all of Christopher's complaints and assertions are true. In fact, I've given evidence that God does exist, I think. Now, some of you may not be persuaded by that. That's okay. There's a difference between proof and persuasion. It's up to you whether you think it's persuasive. Also, the title of this book, God is not great how religion poisons everything. Actually, religion doesn't poison everything. Everything poisons religion. I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. I admit it. And what Christopher does is he conflates all religions and say, because the Muslims are committing jihad and the folks in Belfast are doing evil and the folks in Baghdad are doing evil and even Christians are doing evil, that means there's no truth in religion. Bad theology doesn't mean there isn't good theology. You can't conflate all religions and say that none of them are true just because people do evil things. I am a hypocrite. And when people say to me, I can't go to church because all those hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We've got room for one more. That's what the church is. It's a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. I'll never be perfect. That's why Christ had to come. Now, as Christopher admits... His disbelief is really not in his head, but in his heart. It's not that there's no evidence for God, so that he can't believe. It's that despite the evidence, he won't believe. He says that he rebels against the divine dictatorship. He just mentioned that. He keeps calling God immoral and tyrannical. The problem for Christopher is that there's no immorality or tyranny if atheism's true. Atheism affords Christopher no objective moral standard by which to judge anything immoral or tyrannical, including all the sins of religious people, circumcision, sexual restrictions, the crusade, suicide bombings. All you can say is these people had bad molecules. He has to borrow objective morality from the theistic worldview in order to argue against it. He has to assume God in order to deny him. He has to sit in God's lap to slap his face. Christopher is like the man in a restaurant who is eating a meal and because he doesn't like the food, claims that the chef doesn't exist. This is a non sequitur. Now, I've tried to give evidence as to why I think atheism better describes reality than atheism because of the acronym I use, cosmos. Because all time, all matter, and all space exploded into being out of nothing. Because it exploded into existence with incredible order and extreme fine-tuning. Because life and the genetic code are the result of intelligence. Because there are objective immaterial moral values. Because objective immaterial, immaterial realities such as reason, the laws of logic, and mathematics exist, which enable us to investigate the world through science and this orderly universe. And because a crucified man from an obscure village became the most influential person in human history through his resurrection from the dead. You know, Christopher hasn't given us any real reason to believe atheism is true or to describe reality. He's given no atheistic explanation for how things that we know exist, where they came from. No explanation for the universe, fine-tuning of life, the genetic code, morality, reason, math, science, and we can add human freedom to that if we want. Instead of evidence, Christopher has provided speculation, faith, and ignored the issues completely. That's why I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and why theism, I think, better explains reality than atheism. I want to point out one other thing. We had a question a minute ago about the meaning of life. Christopher says in his book that the sacrifice, that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ is immoral. Again, using the language of morality, but is sacrifice really immoral?
On September 29, 2006, Petty Officer Michael Monsor was a U.S. Navy SEAL. He was serving in Ramadi in Iraq. Petty Officer Monsor had two teammates and had taken a position on the outcropping of a roof when an insurgent grenade bounced off his chest and landed on the roof. Monsor had a clear chance to escape, but he realized that the other two SEALs did not. In that terrible moment, he had two options. He could save himself or save his friends. For Petty Officer Monsor, this was no choice at all. He threw himself on the grenade and absorbed the blast with his body. He died 30 minutes later. One of the survivors put it this way, Mikey looked death in the face and that, day, that day and said, you cannot take my brothers, I will go in their stead. When President Bush gave, gave Petty Officer Monsor's Medal of Honor, to his parents at a White House ceremony, he rightly said this, perhaps the greatest tribute to Mike's life is the way different service members all across the world responded to his death. Army soldiers in Ramadi hosted a memorial service for the valiant man who had fought beside them. Iraqi army scouts whom Mike helped train lowered their flag and sent it to his parents. Then nearly every SEAL on the West Coast turned out for Mike's funeral in California. I don't know if you know, but a seal has a trident. It's a pin. It is probably the most difficult pin in any military to earn. I have a pin, Navy wings. These were difficult to earn, but they were nothing like the seal or the trident that a seal needs to earn. When every seal on the West Coast turned out for Mike's funeral, they all filed past the casket. They removed their golden tridents from their uniforms, pressed them into the walls of the coffin. The procession went on for nearly half an hour, and when it was all over, the simple wooden coffin had become a gold-plated memorial to a hero who will never be forgotten. Now I ask you, is sacrifice immoral? Jesus said this, the greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. So while Christopher's attitude may be, there is no God and I hate him, God's attitude is, there is a Christopher Hitchens and I love him. In fact, I died for him. Let us thank both of our speakers.